Let us turn in God's Word to Second Peter chapter 3, and we were looking at this subject, the doomsday clock, or we really 90 seconds before midnight. I think this 10th verse is a very good place to start. Second Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Amen. May God bless His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come into Your holy presence. We thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your mercy. We think of Your Word and what has to teach us about the end of time. As we consider Your Word today uh, against the suppositions and ideas of unregenerate men, we pray that we would cast our anchor afresh on what is truth. And for those that do not know You, we pray that the warnings would come to them with power, that they would seek the Lord for life. Be with us. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. And amen. On January the 23rd, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists announced that the doomsday clock would remain at the closest to global catastrophe that humanity, in their opinion, has ever been. The doomsday clock is currently set at 90 seconds to midnight. The doomsday clock was initially set after the beginning of the atomic age, when the horror of what occurred at Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan transpired. That was the only time that atomic weapons were exploded in open warfare. There has been tests, of course, but at that moment, man realized the power of the atom when the atom is split. Over 100,000 people died in Japan at that time through those two explosions, and perhaps the figure has gone beyond 200,000. With that one act, America brought World War II to a close, but at a terrible price. World-renowned scientists, who included Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer, of course, has suddenly become a household name as a result of the movie released last year, and that movie is set to take lots of awards at the Oscars. And so lots of people are talking about the work of Robert, Robert, Robert Oppenheimer, and he is the one who is seen as the father of the atomic bomb. But there were others as well, and they were convinced that the world needed to know how close humanity was coming to total annihilation. And so the clock was first set in 1947 at seven minutes to midnight. There's many here, and you can remember the Cold War, the constant fear of a nuclear holocaust. That's how I grew up. There were nuclear bunkers stocked with food in prime locations to enable governments to continue its work should the unthinkable happen. There was a very clear threat to world safety. 
At the close of the Cold War, however, when the Iron Curtain came down, when the Berlin Wall came down, and when Russia and America entered into warmer relations, the clock was pulled back to the furthest it has ever been from the midnight hour, 17 minutes before midnight. The world was a very optimistic place in those days. But in more recent times, new threats have been identified. Russia has this huge nuclear arsenal and has been engaged in war with Ukraine, a war that threatens to draw in NATO. And if we're honest, NATO already is involved. China is an ever-present threat to world peace, as is Iran. Global warming has been cited as a growing problem for the future of humanity. And something else that has been cited is artificial intelligence. Now, the thought of computing technologies going AWOL, taking over the world, that's a chilling scenario, and it seems like something out of science fiction, but could it become reality? I heard a discussion where some people are saying, we must never allow artificial intelligence to control the nuclear arsenal, for who knows what will happen. The potential for AI being employed by so-called rogue states to create nuclear programs of their own poses a grave risk to world peace. And then this past week, Britain has announced plans to recruit a citizen's army to boost our armed forces and readiness for a war with Russia. And some senior figures are saying that there will be a war with Russia inside the next 20 years. And the United States is going to once again deploy nuclear warheads in British soil for the first time since 2008. These are grim times, it is true. And these are some of the reasons why these scientists have got together and they have said, last year we thought the threat was so severe, we put it to 90 minutes to midnight, we're staying at that place. There are challenges facing the world, and much of it is caused by man's own ineptitude, man's own lack of morality. But there are also problems behind this philosophy that's linked to the doomsday clock. And news bulletins this week carried all this talk about the doomsday clock, and it all sounded really alarming and really frightening. And but does it stack up against Scripture? Are there flaws in the way these scientists are looking at the world? How is their worldview informed? Well, there is a total denial of sin. The reason why man uses the intelligence God has given him to devise means of killing millions of people is sin. This is a product of the curse. It's been brought about by man's disobedience of God. Therefore, the ruin that man threatens to bring upon himself and upon the world must be viewed with reference to man's broken relationship with God. The world is an ungodly place, and for that reason, the world is a dangerous place. Sin lies at the heart of all of this. And of course, the Bible says, James 1.15, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And also, and this follows on, there is the supposition that man has the power to make the world good. The idea behind what these scientists are doing is to shake up political leaderships, get the nations together into some kind of 
great peace process because man at his heart can make the world a better place. And that's a fallacy, of course. If man's broken relationship with God is the problem, then man cannot be saved and the world cannot be saved without God. To pin our hopes upon the corrupt creatures who bring this ruin upon us, it's nonsense in the extreme. This is the God of humanism at work, looking to man for all of the answers. Man only makes the world a more dangerous and more corrupt place. He never makes the world a better place because the Bible says, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3. As God has moved from the equation, and because man has been elevated to a God-like status, the concept of judgment is eradicated from history. Judgment is woven into the very essence of humanity and our understanding of the world. This world suffers from the curse. It has suffered from the curse from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in Eden. Adam and Eve felt the pain of that curse. As Adam had to go out and work and till the ground, it was hard going for him. And as they buried Abel, and as they witnessed what murder could do, and as they lost Cain, they were reminded of the curse. And that was judgment. It was judgment not only upon them, but upon the world because of what they had done. And we see this judgment every day. The fact that they are terrible wars is a sign of the judgment of the curse upon this world. Even natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes spewing their tons of red-hot destructive lava, that's judgment. The very creation is groaning and travailing in pain until the day when Christ will come. Think of the awful things that happen in this world, atrocious things. Husbands that bludgeon their wives to death, parents that murder their children, unthinkable things. That's a judgment upon the world. We think of abortion and how God permits man to do such a thing. That's judgment upon the world. You think of depraved expressions of sexuality and how that has been let loose. A genie out of the bottle. That's judgment. Our very nature is responsible for all this. The sinful nature with which we were born. Whatever that nature is set loose and breaks free. There's no telling what it can do to the world, to society, and to people. And we are living with this judgment every day. We see it in the media. We see the pictures of it. We hear the descriptions of it. It's there in every land, every nation. And it reminds us of the psalm that says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, verse 11. Another problem I see with the doomsday clock scenario is the concept that man has it within his power to determine the end of the world. It is true that man has the ability to destroy millions. We know that the ability is there. And it is possible, and maybe it's probable, that God will permit such mass self-destruction as a judgment. But the Bible teaches that God alone will determine the end of the world. And that inferno will be like no nuclear holocaust. It'll be on another level completely. And that's what Peter describes here in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. 
The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And we know from Scripture that it is not man that will determine the end, but God. He is the one that is in ultimate control. And only He knows when that event will take place. And we read that in Mark 13, 32. And there's something else we have to remember in relation to this. Whenever the end comes, it'll come at the moment when man is least expecting it. And if there is a doomsday clock around whenever the end of the world comes, I can almost guarantee that that doomsday clock will be further away from the midnight hour than it has ever been before. And why do I say that? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, in the verse 3, we read, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. And that's all in relation to the coming of Christ. The day of the Lord, as it is called here, he'll come as a thief in the night when people are feeling at peace, feeling at ease, feeling that they have made it, feeling that they have accomplished world peace, clapping themselves in the back, puffed up with their own pride. Then Christ will come and the world will come to an end. So the very fact that these people are saying this goes right against what the Bible tells us about the end. But another fallacy in the logic of this humanistic Western mindset is that the gospel is ignored as the answer to the world's problems. There is hope in the midst of the onrushing darkness. There's hope for billions. It is found in Christ alone. And God is full of grace. And this grace was manifested when Christ laid down his life for our redemption. And it is only through people in their millions coming to faith in Christ that the nuclear warheads will be disarmed and the armies of the nations will be stood down. The gospel alone is a message of peace because the gospel alone restores man's broken relationship with God. And when man's broken relationship with God is restored, then man will come to peace. Only the gospel can accomplish that. It's not the people that stalk the corridors of power and make their decisions behind closed doors. It's not New York or Washington or London or Moscow. The future of the world, the peace of the world, is found in places like this, where Christ is preached and where the gospel is proclaimed. And yes, man needs to be awakened. He needs to be awakened out of his slumber. He needs to realize that there's hope in Christ. And perhaps God will lead this world into a very dark place before people will see that. But the world has yet to see the power of the gospel in all its fullness, despite all that has taken place, the blessings that have come in the past. The world has yet to see the fullness of the gospel being set loose in this world. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, we read that Christ will judge among the nations, and the sores will be beaten into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up their sword against nation. They won't learn war anymore. 
for people will come and walk in the light of the Lord. It's a very great and wonderful, encouraging and heartwarming message in a world of darkness. The Bible does, however, teach us that there is a doomsday clock that is ticking down. We need to be aware of this. There is a clock that's counting down now. It's not the, the clock of these scientists, but God has His doomsday clock. And for those that have not sought refuge in Christ, that have not experienced peace, sheltering under the blood of Christ, it will be doomsday. If you don't know the Lord, and if you haven't made your preparation, it will be doomsday for you. Now, the picture of resting under the blood is pertinent because in the book of Exodus, Egypt had their doomsday. They had their warnings, just like this society. There were so many warnings, all of those plagues that came, and yet there was going to be doomsday. It was going to be a plague of death that would come. The death angel would come, and the firstborn in every household would die. Going to be a dreadful moment in the history of Egypt. But Israel would be saved because they did what God said. Sacrificing the lamb, following God's pattern, taking a firstborn lamb, a male lamb, the best of the flocks. The lamb would be slaughtered, the blood painted in the doorposts and lintels of every house. And when they did all of that and followed the terms of the first Passover meal, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You're going to be saved. And if you are to be saved from doom, from doom, you must shelter under Christ's blood. Faith in Him is our only hope. So let me just share just a few thoughts in closing about doomsday, what it means to you, and how you need to be prepared. Death is the sinner's personal doomsday. There is no greater tragedy than to die in your sins. We know that death is coming. It's coming for us all. But I just want you to stop and think about dying in your sin. John 8, 24, Christ said, if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. If you don't trust Christ, you will die in your sins. There are some awful tragedies that occur. Families being wiped out in one blow. Children suffering cruel deaths. Unexpected accidents. Young people suddenly cut off with so much of life left to live. We do not minimize the enormity of such events. The shock, the loss, the sorrow. But to die unrepentant without faith in Christ is the greatest tragedy of all. It is terrible to lose your life. But there is an inevitability in that. One day we'll all lose our lives. Death is the inescapable and unavoidable fact of human history. But to lose your soul, that is a greater tragedy because that is entirely and completely avoidable. And that is particularly relevant for you because you have the gospel, you've heard the gospel, you possess God's word. You're 
familiar with his hope. You're familiar with his peace. You're familiar with his message. And yet to spurn that day of grace and lose your soul and to die in your sin, that's the greatest tragedy of all. Therefore, for the sinner, the doomsday clock is counting down. How near the midnight hour are you? Your clock may be in the first quarter or the first half. It may be three quarters of the way to midnight. But there may be someone here, and there may be minutes, perhaps even seconds, on the clock of life. This clock is wound but once, and when the midnight hour strikes and death comes, the clock stops. The hands will never be turned back. No second opportunity. Once midnight comes, it's all over. Doomsday will have arrived. Humanism, which underpins all of this flawed thinking about the world and about the future of the world, elevates man. It lives with the basic assumption that death is the end. That's it. Once death comes, that's it. We lose all consciousness. We lose all reality. We lose all awareness. There's nothing beyond the grave. We're just flesh and bone. That's it. The material is the only reality. Of course, if you choose to deny God, you have to work like that. If you choose to deny God, then you have to say that death is the end. Because the idea of a creator, the idea of accountability, if there's an existence beyond death, then there has to be accountability. And that's too much for the old atheist to bear. He can't think about that. Such an idea is unpalatable for modern man. He doesn't want rules. He doesn't want God's rules. He doesn't want a moral code. He wants to make the rules for himself. And then he wants to die and go into oblivion. That's all he wants. But the Bible teaches that there are spiritual realities and they are eternal realities. And the person who tries to deny that man is a spiritual creature, that person is living a fool's kind of life. For there is clearly a spirituality in man. Nature teaches that. What we know of humanity teaches that. Man is aware of another dimension. Man is aware that there's something beyond the here and now. Men and women all over the world, from the beginning of time, they have seen this. Yet the old humanist, he tries to swim against the current and think he's better than anyone that has ever been before. If there is morality, there's judgment. If there is law, there's judgment. If there is conscience, there's judgment. And the conscience is that voice of God that sounds in the heart of every man, even in the heart of the most irreligious person. But there is accountability. We're living in the countdown to death and eternity. And the clock is nearer the midnight hour now than it was at the start of this meeting. And whenever the midnight hour strikes, what's that moment going to look like for those that die in your sin? God forbid that this should be the case. But if you're to continue on, and if the midnight hour comes and the clock strikes twelve, and you breathe your last in the heart, it beats no more. What's it going to be like? Luke chapter 16, the Lord said, the rich man died and was buried, 
And in hell, he lifted up his eyes. It was an instant. He left this world. He opened his eyes in hell. Dear friend tonight, if you refuse the refuge that is offered you and provided for you by the blood of Christ, if you refuse that, there's no hope. There's only hell. That's doomsday. Hebrews 2 verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There is no escape. Today the world wrings its hands in fear of what may happen as a result of a horrible cataclysmic potential that humanity has fashioned. And these threats are serious, and we know it. Yet the thought of personal accountability, individual sin, eternal hell never crosses the mind. Oh, the ignorance of our proud, self-resourceful, proud race. We'll not stop and think about where the soul's going to be. But you've been brought face to face to consider this tonight. What will you do? We just ignore it. So if it somehow doesn't matter, it doesn't count. It's nothing to get too worried about. How can you say that? The clock is still counting down. Still you have an opportunity. Let's also think about the judgment day. Because there is the sinner's personal doomsday, which is death. But there is the judgment day, and that is the sinner's universal collective doomsday. There is a collective doomsday for a world of sinners lost. Peter talks about fervent heat. Paul writes about flaming judgment. John sees a day when Christ will appear and every eye will see him. And I cannot really begin to understand what that's going to be like. It's a miracle in itself. Christ appearing. And from north to west and from, from north to south and from east to west. And from the Arctic to the Antarctic. And everywhere in between. Whether people are in ships in the sea or planes in the air, or whether they're in palaces or in hovels, whatever nation they're in, they're going to see him. Paul says that in that day, those who are saved will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, transformed from mortality to immortality in an instant. And the graves of Christians will be opened. The resurrected saints will arise, souls and bodies reunited into glorious and incorruptible perfection forever with the Lord. Now be a day of hope for those that are saved. Our Lord tells us that sinners will then be resurrected to be brought before God to judgment. Christian, resurrected for glory. The sinner, resurrected. For judgment. John describes the awfulness of this moment when sinners of all nations and classes will be screaming as deranged people crying for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of him that sits on the throne. The day of his judgment has come. Who will be able to stand? Doomsday. John writes of a courtroom. The heaven and the earth have fled away. Vaporize in an instant. 
but yet humanity has been gathered in a place that is so vast that God himself has created, where the dead, small and great, will stand before him, the greatest courtroom of all. And there before it is this great white throne. With horror, each one of millions hears the evidence read from the old books, the records of the unrepentant, records of thoughts, of deeds, records of sins that were long forgotten, harms and hurts inflicted on others, above all times when gospel opportunity was taken and ignored and spurned, when the Word of God was scoffed at or laughed at. It's all going to be brought out on that day. Our Lord speaks of the judge separating humanity as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Family separated forever, loved ones torn asunder, yet the sheep will feel only peace. But the goats will suffer the affliction of every solemn moment. Then the sentence is issued, depart from me. I never knew you. Death and hell delivered to the lake of fire. The second death, the blackness of darkness forever. The doomsday that never ends. This is the doomsday we need to be really worried about. Not the doomsday which may or may not occur, but the doomsday that is approaching for this old wicked world. And the only escape from this wrath which is coming down upon our heads is the power of the cross. That's the only escape. The power of the cross. Christ suffered our doomsday. That's the most amazing thing of it all, you know. You think of what he suffered. You think of the, the pain that he felt, the suffering that he took, the guilt that was his. You think of what he experienced at the cross, submitting himself to the very power of death for us, feeling the curse of God for us, taking it all, that we might have hope, that we might have escape. Proverbs 22, verse 3, See, as a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hateth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Prudence, seeing the evil coming, seeking that refuge. When there's a storm coming, when the weather forecast isn't good, you make provision. Be foolish if you didn't. If the economic situation is going to take a turn for the worse, you can see it coming. You'll put something aside. You'll make some provision. You won't just rush on, needless or headless. If you're going along a, a road and you, you see a warning sign, well, you're going to think about that. And there's red lights flashing all over the place here. Judgment day is coming. Death and judgment are drawing nigh. God says you're to foresee that and you're to hide yourself. And the only place of shelter is in Christ. And you can get into that place of shelter tonight by seeking the Lord as your Savior and crying unto Him, Lord, save me. Or will you do that? You do it where you're at in that chair. Simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Will you save me? We appeal to you tonight to get right with God. For doomsday really is coming. Let us bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we think of your word. We think of the solemn realities the scriptures bring before us for those that are not prepared. Lord, make them prepared by your grace tonight. We hand their hearts and souls to you. Lord, may they experience your mercy. For Christ's sake, 
Let us sing this closing hymn, 219. We'll just sing a couple of verses of this hymn together. We'll sing the, the first two verses of this hymn. A ruler 